everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the hard halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subasati. And we're here, and it's October, and it's Halloween. This is the month for horror fans. So we decided we were going to try to do something extra special for this sacredest of months. And what we came up with was that Halloween is kind of like the gateway drug for horror. When you're a kid, you're just kind of slowly getting introduced to all these horror ideas, and it's fun and acceptable to dress up, and you get exposed to horror movies for the first time, usually. So this is where a lot of our earliest horror memories kind of stem from. So we thought we'd take a look today at children in horror movies. Sacrifice unto him. Bring him the blood of the outlander. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Praise the Lord. In many ways, Halloween is a holiday for children and adult horror fans, and it's kind of an opportunity for the children who are going to become horror fans to discover horror. As a personal anecdote, my sister is fond of telling me that she first realized that I was a little bit different because she caught me listening to this tape. We used to have this audio cassette of spooky Halloween sounds that we used to play in a ghetto blaster out front when kids were trick-or-treating, just to add some kind of ambience. And she caught me listening to that in, like, April on my bright yellow Sony Walkman. And she said that that's when she first knew that I was a little bit different. So for many of us, it was kind of our first encounter with the dark and spooky, and it either stuck with us or it didn't. And if you're listening to this podcast, I think it's safe to say that you are among us. So for this episode, to talk about kids, there are tons of horror movies out there that feature children, and I think we kind of touched on that a little bit in our episode about scary movies, as we talked a bit about how, you know, fear is kind of the common denominator when you're kids. When you're kids, you're scared of the closet, you're scared of under the bed, you're scared of the dark, you're scared of things that go bump in the night. And then when you grow up, you know, you become scared of elevators and clowns and commitment. And rent. And rent and scarier stuff emerges. So for our purposes, we selected three movies that feature children that run the gamut from classic cinema to more contemporary foreign cinema. We chose two films where the child is the actual antagonist. And then we chose a movie where the children are actually the heroes that we root for. I know a lot of you are going to write in and say, you didn't talk about The Shining, and you didn't talk about It, and you didn't talk about Child's Play and Poltergeist, Village of the Damned, Children of the Corn. We just simply couldn't fit it all in, but if you have something to contribute, if you want to apply what we're talking about to another movie, do jump in on the discussion on Facebook and we'll have it out. And what we were trying to do when we chose these films was we tried to distill a lot of themes that come up when you talk about children in film and going further, children in horror films. And we picked kind of our, I don't even know if we can say favorite representations, but possibly, you know, some of the more interesting representations of these themes to talk about in this episode. So this is not, you know, hand to God, the most definitive thing ever. But again, this is all about stimulating discussion. So the first film that we're going to talk about is one that jumped into my mind immediately when we decided to do this topic. It's a classic. It's, uh, it's really near and dear to my heart. It's The Bad Seed from 1956. Isn't that the movie based on you? Good one. Good one. 
seem like you're kind of lonesome with that soldier boy hair's gone. I wish she were mine. Every time I look at her, I wish I had just such a little girl. This has been a terrible tragedy for Mrs. Daigle as she's lost her only child. That know-it-all Monica Breed love. I don't think nobody knows anything but her. He has the mind of an eight-year-old, but he's managed to produce a family, so I keep him on. Give me those shoes back. Oh, no, I got them shoes here where nobody but me can find them. Better give me those shoes, they're mine. Give them back to me. I believe you did it. What'll you give me if I give you a basket of kisses? <laughs> I'll give you a basket of hugs. I'll miss your hugs. Well, I'm not letting the slightest agree. Really knows what she's told if you don't mind me being presumptuous. I had a long talk with that guard since I saw you last. And that was a long, interesting conversation. He said he saw Rhoda on the pier just before Claude was found among the pilings. She owes something all right. Did you have anything? I don't care how small it was. Did you have anything to do with the way Claude got drowned? What makes you ask that, <laughs> Mother? Now, look me in the eye and tell me the truth, because I must know. No, Mother, I didn't. You're not going back to the Fern School next year. They don't want you anymore. Okay. I'm going to call Miss Fern and have her come over here. You think I lied to you her? You did lie to her. But not to you, Mother, not to you. You know something? Miss Fern dyes her hair. And Rhoda's a sweet, perfectly sound little girl. Is she father, is she? Granddaddy! Next to Daddy, you lift me up best. Why do you look at me? I just want to see your face. So for those of you who have picked up the special edition of Rue Morgue's 200 alternative horror films you need to see, you will see my review of The Bad Seed, and you'll know why I love it so much. It's the story of the Penmark family, where there is Christine, her husband Kenneth, and their charming daughter Rhoda. Now, Kenneth works for the military, and when he's sent away, Christine and Rhoda are left behind, and Monica, the kind lady upstairs, agrees to take care of them. Rhoda is a very sweet, charming girl, and she's definitely charmed Monica, but we start to see a really competitive streak in her, especially when she starts talking about an award that they gave away at her school that she lost to a classmate called Claude. After a class picnic, Claude winds up dead, having drowned in a nearby river, and Rhoda is suspiciously unaffected. Now, throughout the movie, Christine and Monica talk a whole lot about psychoanalysis and kind of this nature versus nurture debate. You know, and the movie came out in 1956, which is when psychoanalysis was a very popular topic. And Christine slowly learns that Rhoda may, in fact, be a murderer. 
And so as the movie progresses, Christine becomes more and more convinced and we're kind of along with her on this horrible ride of learning what her daughter is capable of and what she has to do about it. And this is a really interesting film, in part because it's based off of a play, which is based off of a novel. So obviously when you do a play or any kind of theater, there are a lot of things you can't show. And what I find The Bad Seed does as a film is it actually adheres very closely to a lot of theatricality. For instance, there's a lot of mentioning about stuff going on outside, things that happen outside this house, but rarely do we ever leave the house or stray too far from it. So we're left with this kind of really interesting theatricality, which really plays into the theme of Rhoda pretending and kind of conning everyone around her through acting like this perfect little girl. Even though this film came out in the 50s, uh, they couldn't show a lot of gore, but they certainly could have suggested the murders, especially after it becomes quite apparent. But they never do, so they leave a lot of things up to our imagination, which is a really interesting aspect of the film mainly because it is us we the audience are making the leap with Christine in a lot of regards that Rhoda is the murderer and then we have to kind of reconcile that with ourselves so it's actually a really interesting watch just from a whole audience perspective because you do have to really emotionally critically and morally engage with this film to make sense of it. If you didn't know it was based on a play, you would have probably guessed it because, as Alex said, it's very stagey, it's very overblown. Several of the cast members were actually taken from the original Broadway cast, and so it kind of retains that stagey theatrical feel to it, which is actually pretty cool. The performances are bang on by the entire cast, and I'll sing their praises, particularly as regards a character named Hortense Daigle. Now, Hortense Daigle is the mother of Claude, who is the little boy who died. And there is a scene in this movie that just gets me every time. And it's a scene where Miss Fern, who is the teacher at Rhoda's school, comes over to visit Christine and very subtly implies that, you know... Rhoda was the last one to see Claude alive, and Rhoda was kind of bugging Claude about the penmanship award before he died, and this and this and that, and being very careful, but not coming right out and saying that she thinks Rhoda had anything to do with the murder. Then we've got the drunken Mrs. Daigle who stumbles in and does the exact same thing, says, you know, you need to talk to your daughter. You need to maybe ask her what that was about. God forgive me. There were bruises on his hands. And that peculiar crescent-shaped mark on his forehead that the undertaker covered up. He must have bled before he died. That's what the doctor said. And where's the medal? Who took the medal? I have a right to know what happened to the favorite Jim medal. If I knew, I'd have a pretty good idea what happened to him. I don't know why you took it on yourself, put your on me. I'm as good as you are. Claude was better than your girl. He won the medal. She didn't. It's very, very tense because of everything that's being said is awkward and that which is being unsaid is so unspeakably evil that no one wants to say it. And one of the points that Andrea just brought up, which I think is really important to keep in mind throughout this film, is the notion of class systems. Even though it's never explicitly stated, there is a lot of discussion in and around class. This basically has to do a lot with Claude's mother 
because before she enters the picture, you kind of have this sense of, oh, they're this normal family, and they're renting this kind of floor in a house because the father works for the army, so they're traveling a lot. And then as soon as Hortense, Claude's mom, comes into the picture, she starts talking about, oh, wow, this is so nice, and you have all these things. And she really makes it apparent that they have a lot more than everyone else. How are you, Mrs. Benmar? You've always had plenty. You're a superior person. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm oh, yes. Father's rich. Rich Richard Bravo. <laughs> I know. Famous. <laughs> Me? I worked in a beauty parlor. Now I've lost my boy and I'm a lush. Everybody knows it. So there is a real sense of class difference. We understand that through different ways, neither of these moms have anything else but their child. But I feel, from my point of view, that Christine very much feels that she is defined by Rhoda and is very kind of concerned in a lot of ways about what the impact of Rhoda's actions have had on other people. And obviously you'd have that anyway if your child was a murderer, but it seems to be something very class-based in Christine's concerns to my eyes. Now, when we get to Hortense, she's just grief-stricken because she had this child and he shouldn't probably have won the penmanship award. It probably should have been a much more upper-class student, but it was this lower-class kid in the class who won it and she kind of saw really great things for him. And, you know, she mentions throughout the film that she works at the beauty salon and it seems to be this very kind of shameful thing almost, even though she knows, you know, who gets their hair colored in the town. So there is a real class differentiation within the film between who deserves what at what time. Now, another interesting facet to this lens, to this film, is that Rhoda commits crimes that are quite lower class. So obviously murder, which is very rarely seen as an upper class crime. Uh, She also steals the penmanship award, as we find out later. So she is committing these really lowbrow crimes, you know, as opposed to like embezzlement or offshore banking. It's true. We have every indication that Rhoda could have any material thing she could possibly want, and yet it comes up that she will in fact kill if something is standing between her and the object of her desire, be it a penmanship award that she thinks she won or something that was promised to her by an old lady who said that you can have this when I die. What happened to old Mrs. Post in Wichita? There was ice on the steps, and I slipped and fell against her, and that was all. That was all? No. I slipped on purpose. Now, another interesting aspect of the class differential is a character called Leroy, who is the custodian of the building, who has been hired by Monica. And he's he has a family and stuff, but he lives in the furnace room by the furnace. And he's decidedly greasy, and he makes some very theatrical kind of monologues about how, oh, that Miss Penmark is a nice piece of ass, and she's going to be pretty lonely without her soldier boy around and whatever. But what's interesting about Leroy is he sees right through Rhoda's bullshit. He sees right through her pretty dresses and her pretty smile and her smart talk. He sees a killer. When he suspects that she's murdered, he starts teasing her about it and eventually gets her to slip up and reveal something. So he's pretty quick to learn the truth. So 
there's definitely an implication that Rhoda does not belong in this family, that she belongs to a completely different social sphere, one that is criminogenic. Don't want to talk to nobody smart, huh? Like to talk to people she can fool, like a mama and Mrs. Breedlove and Mr. Emery. Here's some Excelsior for you. You talk silly all the time. I know what you do with the Excelsior. You made a bed of Excelsior down the basement, behind that old furnace, and you sleep there where nobody can see you. I've been way behind the times heretofore, but now I got your number, miss. I've been hearing things about you that ain't nice. I've been hearing you beat up that poor little Claude Daigle boy in the woods, and it took all three of the Fern sisters to put you off him. I heard you run him off the wall. He was that scared. If you tell lies like that, you won't go to heaven when you die. And one thing that they mention in the film early on when we're introduced to the character of Leroy is that he basically is the mind of a 10-year-old. So he's basically at Rhoda's level throughout the film, and I think that's what the adults are missing, certainly the ones that don't believe that she's a killer. They don't see it, but because Leroy is essentially her peer, albeit a very creepy, sex-crazed Peer, he's able to see through it and he is able to kind of really mess with her mentally because Rhoda is used to being able to placate the adults around her. She's learned the tricks, she's learned the manipulations of how to appease adults. And Leroy has not. So a few years ago, the New York Times published an article which will link to Facebook and Twitter, and it's basically about the notion of the child psychopath, which is a very real phenomenon. There are children all over the world born with psychopathic tendencies. They are able to live without remorse so they can torture their parents or their siblings. It's actually quite obviously a terrifying thing to have to raise a child who you're not sure about their intentions. This is actually very interesting because in the article, which is very well written, they really approach it from a psychological standpoint. The the writer of the piece follows this one family in particular as they send their child who very much has sociopathic tendencies and violent tendencies to this camp for disturbed young children. And she talks about how the children learn to manipulate the system within the camp and how they learn to fight back. And there's also a point in the article where she mentions spending one-on-one time with the boy and she sees him being very abusive to his younger brother. So as soon as she makes her presence known, let's say the bad seed in this case, he immediately changes his tune and becomes very charming and kind and very, very manipulative. And this actually goes into one of the other themes of this movie, which is nature versus nurture. This comes up quite a bit, especially because this is a conversation that's had with different characters at different points through this film. Obviously, Monica, their landlady, has long talks about psychotherapy with Christine. Christine's father is a crime writer who has his own opinions and believes that any psychopath is born out of their environment. It is not a genetic thing. And because Rhoda is this upper class, you know, beautiful, well-maintained child, there is no reason she should be a psychopath. But because Christine is experiencing this firsthand, she's really having to come to terms with the fact that this may be totally uncontrollable. They may never be able to fix Rhoda because being given every advantage in life does not unmake a psychopath. 
No, that's right. And insofar as Christine's father is talking about how important the environment is, and Christine herself kind of echoes that when they're talking about another criminal. Well, he was he was born in the slums and crime was all he was raised to know. In the end, Christine actually discovers that she was adopted and that she's the direct descendant of a known psychopathic female murderer. And when she discovers this, combined with her existing suspicions that Rhoda is a killer, this just gives her all the certainty. So nature versus nurture plays throughout the film, as Alex said. And what's interesting is that the film differs substantially from the play in the ending. The way the film ends is Christine having resigned herself to the fact that her daughter is a murderer and that she is, in fact, not responsible for it, but... It was her latent gene that made it so, decides to kill them both. She gives Rhoda a nice handful of sleeping pills and tells her to go to sleep. And then she goes into her own bedroom and we hear a gunshot. Now, in the movie, both of them survive. And what happens is Rhoda goes trotting down to the ill-fated pier where Claude Daigle met his end and is struck down by lightning, which is ironically what? Nature nature rectifying the balance of the universe. Now, in the play, what happened is Christine's suicide succeeds, but Rhoda survives and grows up under the care of her dad and probably goes on to become a prolific serial killer. And what's disturbing about that is the idea that she's out there and she got away with it and she'll continue to get away with it. So according to Wikipedia, the difference between the play and the movie is largely due to the Hayes Code, which was kind of the moral conscience of cinema back in the 50s, and we simply can't have people murdering children, certainly not. But at the same time, we can't let murderous little children get away with it. So the clever device they thought of to take care of that was to have her struck by lightning, which is its kind of ridiculous and not wholly satisfying. One of the things I find really interesting about this film is its notion of purity. So the notion of goodness that is, you know, essentially inherent in all of us. Now, what the New York Times article, as I was just mentioning, kind of comes around to is that this is a real trauma. This is a psychological disability. This is a mental illness. This is not potentially anyway, it's not a malevolent force living within us. It's a chemical imbalance in the brain. Now, it's interesting because at this point, certainly Christine saw no other way of getting out of this chemical imbalance other than having to kill her child and then saw no way out for herself. So she then knew she had to kill herself or at least attempt to in order to stop any more killing that would happen. The other thing to consider just throughout all of the films we're going to talk about today and about children in film in general is that children often represent our future, our hopes, our dreams. They're representative of all that will come after us. So if our child is diseased or evil, that means our future is diseased or evil. That is, Those are the hands we are leaving this world in. So when you have a malevolent figure who is a child, there is a sense that it's only going to get worse. That's right. Insofar as a child killer kind of is a taboo, Rhoda is not only an upper class child, double taboo, but she's a little girl, triple taboo. Little girls are supposed to be all sugar and spice and everything nice. And at the beginning of the film, it's remarked upon that Rhoda is going to her school picnic in a pretty little dress. And Monica says to her, what, 
wearing a pretty little dress to go to a picnic. Don't you want to wear blue jeans or something? May, of course. How wonderful to meet such a natural little girl. She knows what she wants and she asks for it. Not like these over-civilized little pets that have to go through analysis before they can choose an ice cream soda. (laughs) And the fact that she comments on her as a natural, she's a natural little girl. Monica, with all her psychobabble, still kind of adheres to this belief that little girls are sugar and spice and everything nice. And Rhoda really personifies that. What I thought was really interesting when I was reading that New York Times article is that everything they described with psychopathology and stuff like that, what was interesting about Rhoda is that she's very fastidiously clean and she likes to dress up. And that's not something that was mentioned in the article, but it's something that we've seen in another famous psychopath in American cinema, which is to say the American Psycho. And I kind of, when I watch this movie, I kind of think that if Rhoda had been able to grow up, she would probably be living in an immaculate IKEA-inspired catalog of an apartment and doing a thousand crunches every morning. So our next film is one that is near and dear to my heart, mainly because my father showed this to me when I was far too young, and that would be The Omen. For generations, the Thorns have been a family of tremendous wealth, position, and power. The perfect marriage of Ambassador Robert Thorne and his wife Catherine was fulfilled by the birth of their son, Damien. And then... When the child was five years old, something terrible happened. And then it happened again. Was it an accident? Was it murder? Was it a coincidence? Or was it an omen? Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. 20th Century Fox presents a film of psychological suspense about an occurrence of earth-shaking importance. Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, The Omen. I was at the hospital, Mr. Thorne, the night your son was born. I saw its mother. I saw its mother. I have fears. I have fears. It's mother, Mr. Thorne. You saw my wife. It's mother. What is it you're trying to say? His mother was a... This is not a human child. Make no mistake. There are those who will die for him. There are those who will kill for him. Who is he? What does he want? Where did he come from? And can he be stopped? Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, The Omen. If this is the truth, where does it end? In Richard Donner's film, we follow Robert Thorne, who is an American upper government worker kind of guy. As we meet him, his wife is giving birth to their child in an Italian hospital. Now, 
what happens is the child actually dies just after it's born and the wife is unaware of this so one of the priests at the hospital comes to Robert saying there's actually another child whose mother died also you know a son we can just switch them and no one ever has to know but you and I Robert reluctantly agrees to this and then as soon as they adopt this strange little child name him Damien things start to go really, really well for them. Mainly that he is appointed the U.S. ambassador to Britain. And then as time goes on, Damien starts growing up, so we kind of meet them again when he's about four or five years old. And people start dying. Like, a lot of people start viciously dying around this family. And it becomes apparent again, firstly to the mother, who kind of thinks she has a psychological problem because she believes these things about her child and is trying to seek treatment because of this. But the father actually knows the truth and eventually discovers that they are raising the son of the devil. This film is also very near and dear to my heart because if I haven't mentioned this on the podcast already, I went to Catholic school. I went to Catholic elementary school and I went to Catholic high school, which is probably where some of my more morbid proclivities developed. You know, I had a I had a dress code with the little kilt and the tie and the cardigan and it was totally cool with me because I probably would have dressed that way anyway. But I've always loved movies that dealt with religious themes, especially secular people grappling with religious themes, which is what happens in this movie. What happens to this family is, like Alex said, everything goes so perfectly, eerily perfectly. You know, like Robert and Catherine are so in love. Everything political is going well. Everything is perfect. And not only is Damien the Antichrist, but it comes about that there is an agenda and it's not just to kill people and to harm people and stuff, but there's a political angle that being in a political family, Damien would necessarily get into politics and a position of power. And what does evil want more than being in control of the entire world, preferably the United States? Well, maybe not today, but certainly in the 70s, that would have been a pretty sweet deal. What's interesting is that a lot of the deaths, not all of them necessarily, have to do with when Damien's ascent to this throne is kind of threatened, when someone catches on to him. So there's a sense of right now he's not killing out of spite necessarily, but there are these kind of guardian figures around him that are protecting him. So you've got this, I believe it's a Rottweiler that kind of shows up and just stands there and then people tend to kill themselves or something bad happens to them. And then and then his other more human guardian is the nanny, Mrs. Baylock. And she arrives on the scene after his initial nanny kills herself in one of the more spectacular suicides on film. especially in comparison to Rhoda in The Bad Seed, whom we were just talking about, is Rhoda's a very articulate child. Granted, Damien is about half her age when The Omen takes place, but he's an eerily silent child. 
he doesn't do a whole bunch. He maybe there's a couple scenes of him playing with Robert, but essentially has no interaction with his mother, very little to do with this family. He's just kind of there. There is that sense that he is just waiting for everything that is coming to him to happen, and he's going to let this chaos surround him. So it's almost like a French farce with Damien at the center just kind of watching everything play out and these adults like smacking into each other, running in and out of doors, falling off of things and really kind of killing themselves for either protecting or destroying him. Now, Damien's relationship with his mother is really interesting because, as Alex said, there's always this kind of disconnect between them. You know, when they spend time together, these weird things happen that scare the bejesus out of Catherine. And her reaction to these things happening is never that I think something is wrong with Damien. It's I think something is wrong with me. I need to see a therapist. I feel like Damien's not my son. And that's ridiculous because that couldn't possibly be the case. If there were anything wrong you'd tell me wouldn't you wrong what could be wrong with our child robert we're the beautiful people aren't we there is something wrong isn't there kathy is it so serious robert i i i want i need to see a psychiatrist i i have Fears. I have such fears. What kind of fears? What kind? Oh, if I told you, you'd put me away. Kathy, I love you. I love you. Then help me. Find me a doctor. I will. Of course I will. Now, Robert, who knows the truth, is approached by a priest, Father Brennan, and also by a photographer called Keith Jennings, who have kind of kept their eye on Damien and the crazy happenings around this family. And he eventually pieces together what it is that's going on. But being an educated man and a man of high social stature, he buys it, but he is unable to deliver the killing blow. In the end, when he's presented with these daggers and you have to kill Damien with these daggers, he's not able to do it. So when the movie ends, Damien survives and presumably goes into politics. So next time you hear from Todd Aiken, maybe think about that. What about in the case of rape? Should it be legal or not? Well, you know, uh, uh, people always want to try and make that as one of those things. Well, how do you, how do you slice this particularly mm-hmm. tough sort of ethical question? It seems to me, first of all, from what I understand from doctors, that's really rare. If it's a legitimate rape, uh, the female body has ways to try to shut that whole thing down. But let's assume that maybe that didn't mm-hmm. work or something. You know, I think there should be some punishment, but the punishment ought to be in the rapist and, and not attacking the child. So another thing to keep in mind is when we get to the release date of this film in 1976, is that the Cold War was still present and still going on. So it's really living with the notion that when you go to sleep, you might really not wake up. And not just you everyone might not wake up. The world at this time was one bad decision away from a nuclear holocaust. So the notion of end of days was becoming quite prevalent at this time. So we were seeing more of the beginnings of the satanic panic movement in films. So we're seeing more movement to religion, not only to explain this kind of end of days feeling where the world really could end, but also a movement of the population to kind of re-embrace Christianity and re-embrace the religion that they've inherited for a sense of comfort. 
So the notion that a young child could actually bring about the end of days was not something totally out of the realm of possibilities. So we were seeing a lot of people gravitating towards this kind of film because it was mirroring what was going on in their everyday life. And just as I was mentioning before about children representing our future in film, Damien was very much this kind of silent killer present throughout the film, could strike at any moment. No one was really safe. And we see this time and again throughout the film, and it mirrors perfectly the social and political climate of the time. So one of the things that The Omen also does, in a much more subtle way than The Bad Seed, but it also reflects on the notion of the upper class, The theorist Robin Wood, who we've talked about on this podcast before, in his piece, American Nightmare, he suggests that film audiences at this time, which were, you know, middle class, working class people going on a Friday or Saturday night to have a fun time, really relished the idea of watching the upper class destruction. So they were able to go take their hard-earned money, and while all the upper-class rich people were at the ballet or opera, they could watch their downfall through their egos and inability to see things. So there was a nice kind of schadenfreude present in there, and also the notion that being middle-class and working-class, they had the ability to actually see past that and know that Damien was the devil child and see beyond what the upper-class could understand. That's right. And it kind of reflects upon the bad seed as well, which was another upper class family. It's just evil doesn't necessarily come from poverty or struggle or disease or anything like that. It can strike even upper class families as well. And I think in line with what Robin Wood was saying, I think people go to movies for escapism, right? We kind of like to see the wheelings and dealings of the rich and famous. We like to see people grapple with something other than rent or bills or whatnot. You know, there's kind of a backlash against that now is is there's a lot of indie movies that are making really relatable circumstances and characters that are doing very well. But in the 70s, you know, and particularly in horror, these upper class families are crumbling. And so there's a certain appeal in that. And I think particularly if you just go to see something for fun, you're looking at some degree for a reinforcement of your life choices. So the fact that something can mirror back to you when you watch it No, you're making the right choices. You're not upper class and you're here watching this film. So you would totally know if your kid was the son of the devil. So there's a nice kind of dichotomy between those who wish to see earning that privilege through hard work and those who don't. And they are so blind to it because they would not degrade themselves, so to speak, to go see a horror movie, which is why we will never birth the spawn of the devil. Speak for yourself. So now we're going to get into the third movie that we've decided to talk about. And as I mentioned in my little introduction, this one's a little bit different. Instead of the child being evil genetically or evil spiritually, we have a bunch of very poor, very brave, very sweet children who are living in an environment of pure evil. And it's a beautiful story of how they deal with it and how they ultimately conquer it. Guillermo del Toro's The Devil's Backbone.
Now, the devil's backbone is set in the midst of the Spanish Civil War. And what we have is this orphanage for young boys. And we follow the tale of Carlos, whose father was a patriot and was killed. And he gets deposited with Dr. Cesares and Carmen, who run the boarding school. So before long, Carlos becomes aware that there is a supernatural entity haunting this boarding school. And he slowly learns that there was a young boy who disappeared from the school, a young boy named Santi. And as the story progresses, he learns that Santi was actually murdered by a young man who was once a boy at this school named Jacinto. And I don't know, maybe it's just me, but uh, does Jacinto look like a more handsome Eli Roth? I'm totally with you. Carmen's husband fell in battle and Dr. Cesares was a good friend of his. And Carmen and Dr. Cesares have this kind of emotional entanglement. Dr. Cesares is a very educated and erudite old soul, but we learn that he has some trouble in the erection department. And so she is sleeping with Jacinto and there's actually a really moving scene where she tells him that it's because he's like a beast and Jacinto actually takes some pride in that and it comes up again later in the movie. So throughout the film, we follow Carlos and his ragtag group of friends, some of whom are his friends and some of whom are just bullying him. But it seems that this ghost wants to communicate something to Carlos. And Carlos learns that the ghost is, in fact, this boy, Santi, who disappeared from the school long ago. So while the children are grappling with that, the adults are grappling with the war. The war is moving closer to them. And Carmen has a stash of gold that she has been hanging on to for when the war is over for them to rebuild their lives. So one thing to understand about the Spanish Civil War is that it was a war between fascism and socialism. So it was the Socialist Party, which had been in power and had gotten reelected, and then the fascists wanting to take power. So that's when they launched their efforts to overthrow the government, and ultimately they succeeded. So then you had General Franco ruling Spain, taking them through World War II by aligning himself with Hitler, and then leading to many, many decades of social unrest within Spain. So what you have is some of the characters representing socialism, Carmen and Dr. Cesares, and then Jacinto, who is a young fascist, So you have a lot of young people in Spain at the time of the Civil War. Same as kind of what was happening in Germany, where they were unhappy with the way things had been before and the society they were raised in and being promised so many new things by this new party coming to power. If you fight for us, if you believe what we believe, we will give you all the things you want. Now, of course, it was a lot of generals working towards their own agenda, but you had a lot of blood spilt at this young, hungry generation fighting for supremacy, and eventually, as it's kind of want to happen, they tend to win out over the old guard. Which is sadly what happens in this film. Jacinto brings some young, greedy, fascist fuckers back to the house, and they torch the place. They bomb it, killing Carmen and seriously maiming Dr. Cesares. And at this point, it's up to the children to A, survive, and B, kind of restore the natural balance of right and wrong. And this movie, to me, really plays out like a fairy tale. There's a fairy tale aspect of it, the way the supernatural kind of works with the political. It's it's a really, really lovely film. And I think one of the interesting things about this film is where it comes in Del Toro's 
now expansive repertoire of films that he's made. So one of his earliest known films was Kronos, which he followed up with the kind of big American film which Miramax produced called Mimic, which I actually really love, but some people have a problem with. And then that bombed. Harvey Weinstein was really mad at him. You'll never work in this town again, kid, that kind of stuff. So he went back to Mexico, got financing, and made Devil's Backbone. And you can very much see a lot of the themes that are present in Devil's Backbone in something that a lot of people say is his most fully realized vision, Pan's Labyrinth. So Del Toro is innately fascinated with children and the way children react to situations. I also think he's really great at playing the adult drama against the child drama. And it's not that he's judging one is more important than the other. He's simply framing his devices within adults are dealing with one thing that is incredibly important, but we as an audience understand that these children are not just scared of an imaginary ghost, they're scared of a real ghost. They're even more scared because they know the ghost's secret, which is that Jacinto is capable of murder and unstoppable. And what Del Toro does so well is he always manages to bring those two conflicts together so you have a real sense of finality and climax in his films. He's also great at giving children respect. And the one who sighs, the one that the children are talking about, the adults have their theory of what happened to Santi is he probably ran away. And sometimes children ran away and he just kind of disappeared. So it's only the children who have an idea that there is a ghost haunting this place. And it's a ghost that they fear, but it's also a ghost that they're interested in and they seek to understand. And this is... For me, one of the most fascinating aspects about Spanish culture is the idea that ghosts and the supernatural are trying to communicate with us for a reason. So he really affords the children the respect that they deserve, and their superstition is even rewarded with an important plot point that carries everything further. Carlos is afraid of Santi because Santi is really kind of grotesque to look at and found when I was rewatching this, even the way Santi kind of approached Carlos, it's like, really, you're going to come up behind him like that with that kind of misty, watery blood flowing upwards from your head? You got to know that that's going to scare the living shit out of him. But basically, when it comes down to it, the kids have to stand up to the bigger and stronger Jacinto. They kind of team up with Santi, which is really cute. Most adorable ghost ever. And so just as we were talking about the adult horror and the child horror, it's important to remember that the children are still living within the world of the adult horror. They're still living within the world of the Spanish Civil War. While they might not be fully aware of everything that is going on around them, they've all been affected by it, which is why they are all at this kind of halfway home. Even though everyone is trying to take care of them and protect them, it is an inescapable truth of what they have to deal with. And this is something created by adults, the sins of the father being revisited upon the children. So we're actually seeing kind of an inverse of what we've been talking about, where the children are our future, and we see the future is really, really fucking evil. We are now seeing these bright, empathetic, lovely children who you really bond with. And at the end of the film, they are going off into the unknown down a dirt road by themselves. And it's this really triumphant ending when when I first watched it and when I always experienced that scene, I'm just like, they made it. They're, they're out. They're going to do it. And then I realized, oh my God, they're just going to walk into a war. And it's not to say they won't make it, 
or that they won't be okay but there is a really melancholic sense about the whole thing and about this kind of shadow that's cast over the whole film and going back to what you were saying about how the children are kind of living under these adult circumstances there's a really poignant symbol of that in the boys home which is this giant bomb fell right in the middle of the courtyard on the night of Santi's murder and it didn't go off miraculously and somebody came and diffused it but it is a giant representation of the fact that they are living under the threat of this war and they've got a bomb right in their courtyard and they've said more than once that this boys home is so isolated that if it were to get torched if everyone were to get killed if everyone were to just drop dead for no reason nobody would know about it and nobody would care so there is a lot of doom and gloom but in spite of that there is so much heart in this film and we highly highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. And one of the things that kept occurring to me when I watched this film, especially more recently, is the painting, which if you don't know it by name, I'm sure you've probably seen it, Picasso's Guernica. And Picasso, obviously, being the very, very famous Spanish painter, was living abroad. I believe at this point he was living in France during the Spanish Civil War, and he wasn't really engaging with the Spanish Civil War, even though a lot of people kind of wanted him to. He was like, no, I'm off being an artist. And then news reports of what happened in this town called Guernica started reaching him, which was basically that the fascists dropped a bomb on this tiny remote town, killing everyone in it. And Picasso was so moved by it and so enraged by it that he did what, I mean, I'm not an art historian, I'm not an art critic, but what I think is my favorite piece by him because it is incredibly emotive, but also very abstract. So you have, it's a scene of chaos and it's a scene of all these things happening and people entering and exiting and all these symbols going on. And that's after a bomb has gone off. So if you look at the devil's backbone, it's these characters frozen in time, waiting for something to happen. Like there is a bomb, even though it's been diffused, they kind of always say, oh, it could still be ticking. Um, so it's these characters waiting for something to happen, for something to jettison them all forward because they are all stuck. They are all in this routine and they're all kind of suspicious of each other and, you know, wary of each other. So it's all the events that happen after Carlos's arrival and his encounter with Santi that really help propel and help make these characters make decisions to get to a climax and final act of this movie. I hate Hollywood movies with children, most happy, brainless creatures that spout one-liners. And I tried to put that in Devil's Bag on how unsafe it is to be a child. So to recap, as I said in my little introduction, this is an episode on children and horror. We talked about two manifestations of evil in children and then a manifestation of purity and goodness in children that overcomes evil. Another common thread through these films, which actually only occurred to me after I'd finished making my notes on all these films, and some of them are quite obvious, and for one of them it isn't, but it's the theme of war throughout each of these films. So in The Bad Seed, you have Rhoda's father and Christine's husband as some kind of seemingly like higher-up army kind of guy, and he's having to go away, so Christine and Rhoda are left on their own. 
in The Omen, it's much less explicit, but I really think you can just draw that parallel so clearly between the Cold War and what's going on within the Thorne family and all the fear and reactionary things that are going on within The Omen really parallel all the social and political fears of the time. And then most obviously in The Devil's Backbone, the entire backdrop of the film is set against a war. I mean, there's even a goddamn bomb in the middle of this school because of this war. And that sense that all these people are living on borrowed time. So the notion that war kind of brings about a lot of fear, panic, and emphasis on children is really important. You know, that saying, the children are our future, well... The question through these films really leads to this kind of big question of what impact does a really cataclysmic event have on the future, whether the child is a product of this kind of war environment and is inherently evil or a product of evil, or if they are good and pure and having to defend their goodness and purity in a really harsh reality. That's right. And The Bad Seed and The Omen both feature children who are both evil through some force that is not really their fault. One of them is genetic and the other is kind of supernatural. So in both cases, I think it reflects a societal view that children are never innately evil. There is always kind of something that came before it to cause it. So the backdrop of the war is really useful as a device in all of these films. Another movie that I would have really liked to talk about, but for the sake of the episode, we kind of had to limit to three, which is probably more films than we've talked about in depth in this podcast since it started. But I really wanted to talk about The Innocence, which is a beautiful classic horror film featuring a pair of children who become possessed by a torrid love affair between two people who lived in the estate that they're growing up in. And if you haven't seen that film, again, it's a very highly recommended from the Faculty of Horror Film. Do check it out. Another one I would have liked to talk about that parallels more closely to The Devil's Backbone is Night of the Hunter, where these children find themselves in a position where they are defending a fortune of some sort, and they're really left to their own devices and on their own. So if you haven't seen that one, it's another classic to check out, another film that was featured in the top 200 horror films that you need to see. And I think we're also seeing a movement back towards the notion of classical horror, if you will, with quotation marks. Because for a long time, we had a real renaissance of found footage horror, which mainly has to do with adults. Not a lot of them tend to involve children in any regard. So I think when we see, and I think you can also trace this back to not only the original J-horror films or Asian horror films, but also the Americanization, was the notion of family and how corrupted family has become through our modern society. Films like The Ring or The Eye, the children are a real conduit for evil to come through to our dimensions. And then even more recently, I think we're seeing in the work of someone like James Wan with his films, both Insidious, the first one, and then Chapter Two, those really center around children and the notion that evil has kind of followed a child throughout their life. And then even just this past summer with The Conjuring, the you know notion of someone trying to attack children for a very specific reason, they're a real gateway. So even as we get older and we're adult and we know that 
there probably isn't something under our bed or behind that door. If you have a child, they are more susceptible to that. As we've also talked about in previous episodes, it's the notion that women and children are much more open to being possessed or attacked by demonic or supernatural forces because as women or a child, you are more empathetic and more open to these kinds of possibilities. So what I thought was particularly interesting in something like The Omen, it's you have the father really having to deal with, I might be the crazy one where I actually understand that all of this going on is real and that the devil is real. And now I have to reconcile all of those things within myself and within my family. And so now we'd like to hear from you. What are your favorite movies involving a child in some kind of peril? Maybe not necessarily even a horror film, but you know, what scared you as a child? What child in peril got to you? So you can reach us through email. We're the faculty of horror at gmail.com. You can get us on Twitter. That's at faculty of horror, or you can get us on Facebook. We're on there too. And yeah, we would, as always, love to hear from you. That clip show is coming up probably around our year anniversary. And yeah, get it to us. We will listen to all the nice things. So that's it for our Halloween episode. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope that you have a very happy and safe Halloween. And from both of us at the Faculty of Horror, office hours are closed. <laughs>